The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 16. The word of God speaks to us. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word to us. What could, uh, what could possibly be difficult about that? <laughs> What could be difficult or confusing about that? We've got some work to do today, clearly. Um, hey, if, if you're new today, my name is Chad Kinster. I serve as one of our pastors, our teaching pastor here downtown. And um, what a perfect Sunday to jump in. What a perfect Sunday. And typically you think of like, well, of course my first Sunday is like when I talk about money, you know? It's like, well, now this is your first Sunday, right? Um, hey, listen, what we do here at Frontline is we, we preach through books of the Bible. And we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're, we're a Bible-honoring church, right? So we want to believe that the Bible, in all of its parts, are God's perfect and precious word to us. They're able to guide us in all things of faith and practice. And so again, our steady diet is to work through books of the Bible. We occasionally will break off and do topical things or cultural analysis things, but steady diet is through books of the Bible, which means we don't skip verses, so we haven't cherry-picked this passage. We've been systematically working through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is where we land today. And we're going to receive this today as God's word to us. So if you'd please pray for me, I'll pray for you. And I also ask that as we pray, you pray for the people around you. Let me just go ahead and say, as I pray, um, my earnest desire today, like the thing that's been grounding me as I've thought about you, as I've thought about this passage, as I thought about the heart of our Father, is that this would be clear to us, it would be helpful to us, because God in no part of his word intends to confuse us or hurt us, and no part of his word. And so my prayer today is that we would receive this as the church at Thessalonica received the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He says, you receive the word of God as it is, the very word of God, right? That's this passage too. So would you please pray for me, and we'll get to work. Our Father, we come to you 
by faith in Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit today. And I ask that you would please help this passage, as we've just said, to make sense. Would you set a guard over my mouth from saying anything that would be unhelpful or untrue today? Would the application of this text be helpful? We believe, God, that your word is perfect. (laughs) It's so perfect, God, to train us in righteousness. Your word is perfect to correct us in our error and equip us for every good work that you have from us. And so I pray pray today that you would keep us from believing or moving in any direction that's contrary to your word. We want to stand, God. We want to stand in the stream, in the direction that your word would take us today and move with you. And so, Jesus, you have promised. I'm banking on this promise today. You have promised not to lose a single person that the Father has given to you. You've promised not to lose a single one of us, but to keep us and to persevere us and to edify our faith until the great day when our faith becomes sight. You've promised this. And so you're faithful to all of your promises. And I ask that today as we open this word that you would engage us on that promise. And I pray this in Jesus' strong name. And together we said, amen. Well, there's a danger for us every time we open our Bibles. Not, not just today, every time we open our Bibles, there, there's actually a danger for us, and it comes down to this. Will we sit in judgment upon Scripture to determine what's true or relevant or useful for us, or will we let Scripture sit in judgment upon us so that Scripture can determine what's true and relevant and useful about our lives? And what's a trouble for modern Westerners like you and me is that we tend to think that the Bible can be divided into two neat categories. And on the one hand, there's the category of timelessness. On the other hand, there's the category of culture. And so the timeless sections of Scripture are stuff that we see that easily translates from when it was written to our world now, stuff that we still need to give ourselves to. So when the Bible says things like love one another, that's obvious enough or forgive one another, or be patient with one another, or forgive your sins, that's timeless stuff. That, that translates to every culture. So we put that in the category of stuff we still need to give ourselves to as timeless. And we don't do this consciously. We do it sort of subtly. The other side, we tend to see parts that we deem to be more cultural as parts that don't easily translate from Scripture to our modern moment. And then essentially what happens is we see those parts of Scripture as basically irrelevant for our life. And we see a lot of the Old Testament in that way. And here's the problem with seeing the Bible in two categories like that. The Bible is both timeless and cultural. All of it. All of it. So it's timeless in the sense that it's God's word to God's people across all times and across all places. It doesn't change whether you're in the continent of Africa or Asia or South America or Europe or here. And at any time period, you lived in those places. It's the same. But the Bible is also cultural because every text of Scripture was given in a particular place to a particular people, and at a particular time. And so if you disregard one part of Scripture on cultural grounds, then you're going to have to get rid of all of the Bible on cultural grounds. And I don't think anyone's prepared to do that. 
And so our job then, especially with a passage of scripture like the one we're opening today, is to do some hard work. It's to do some hard work. The hard work of understanding what did the passage mean then? What did the passage mean then? This is what's known in the world of interpretation as authorial intent. What did the author intend? This is a basic rule of interpretation. The passage can never mean now what it never meant then. It's really important for any kind of Bible study you do. No passage of scripture can mean now what it never meant then. So what's at the heart of it? And what does that mean for us now? Even in the places where our society and our culture is different, what's at the heart of it? And how does that translate to a different society and to a different culture? Kathy Keller in her book, her wonderful book, if you don't have it, you ought to pick it up, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, she's gonna say this, we must find a way to obey faithfully whatever we discover to be God's revealed will, even if our cultural situation has changed since it was first revealed. And so here's what I wanna ask of you today as we jump into this passage. Please stay with me to the end. It would be easy to pass judgments. It would be easy to sort of guess where I'm going to go or guess where this passage is. Please stay with me to the end. I think that you'll find where we land today will be a real relief at the level of head coverings and haircuts. We're not going to have any standard issue doilies to hand out to the ladies on the way out today. And we're not going to be offering men's haircuts after the service. That's not an institution of our church today. On the other hand, I do believe that where we land will still be deeply challenging. It was deeply challenging for the church then. And so for a passage that at first reading might seem a million light years removed from us. If you've ever just come across this passage in your Bible reading, you've probably just gone on to the next episode, right? It seems a million miles removed from us, but it's actually more relevant than we could possibly imagine, especially in a moment that is absolutely at war on gender issues. It's at war. We're told that gender is nothing and everything all at once. We're told that gender is a cultural construct, that it's fluid and interchangeable. And so what we've got to figure out is what is meant by all this talk about hair, what's meant by this talk about hats, and what does that have to do with gender, prayer, and prophecy? All of those things are going on in this passage. And I'm guessing this morning that you didn't feel the need, you didn't feel the need to question your haircut. Maybe your spouse did, or someone next to you, but you didn't feel the need to question your haircut or your hair length. And if you did question those things, it wasn't based on what you believe the Bible says. So what gives here? Because the Bible speaks to it. I'm also guessing that you didn't question whether or not you should wear a hat today. Some of you are wearing a hat. Some of you aren't. But I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't because you believe something about biblical conviction. It was probably just a style choice, right? And so we're going to unfold this passage in four different moves today, four different points, and the, the, the headings are pretty clear. I'll give them to you, and then we'll start moving through. We're going to talk about hair and head coverings first, gender difference, prayer and prophecy, and then lastly, what about us? Hair and head coverings, gender differences, prayer and prophecy, and then what about us? Let's jump into the first. Pick up with me in verse 2. It says, now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything, 
and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians marks the beginning of a new section of this book, and it's a change in topics. So everything that we're going to read now from chapter 11 to chapter 14 contains instructions related to corporate worship. How should things go down when the church gets together weekly on the Lord's Day for worship. That's what this whole section is about. And verse two is somewhat of a comical opening to this section because Paul starts with this commendation. I commend you, he says to the Corinthians, for staying with the traditions, for the pattern of teaching and practice that he must have left with them until now as they're receiving this letter. But the irony is that this entire book to this point, with this commendation that Paul gives them, the irony is that the entire book has been corrective to their faith and practice. This entire section on chapters 11 to 14 is a correction for how they were handling issues of gender, the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts. So it's as though Paul is like this school teacher who's coming alongside a student <laughs> whose worksheet is almost entirely incorrect. And the school teacher comes alongside the student and before giving the correction says, hey, I'm so Thank you so much for your work. Like, thank you so much for your hard work. Thank you for trying to carry out the way I instructed you to do this. But, but, and then here comes, here comes the corrective red pen all over the worksheet, right? And so when it comes to the issue of hair and head coverings, what we know is based on three things. Number one, what's said in this passage, and that's, that's most important. What, what this passage says is most important. Secondly, what we know historically about first century customs and the way people dressed. And then thirdly, what we know broadly about the problems within the Corinthian church, particularly their sexual sin, their low view of the body, and their love of freedom to cast off restraint. The fact that this issue is brought up with this church and no other New Testament church ought to tell us something about how wild Corinth was. And so look at verses four to six. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For the wives there, it's speaking of her husband, and for the men there, it's speaking of Christ. We'll pick up on more of that in a bit. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, then let her cover her head. Paul has in mind here, when we read this, Paul has in mind a correction for men every bit as much as he does the women. He even starts with the men first in verse four. Men, you should not cover your head, and ladies, you should. There's a long history and tradition of head coverings within the Jewish community and what was common for Roman women. It was, uh, in, their, in their moment, a symbol of modesty, an expression of feminine dignity, and even more importantly, it was a way to signify a woman was married. It was something like a wedding ring in their culture. This is not the same thing as a veil or a face covering that you see in many Muslim, Muslim cultures that you associate there. That was simply not common uh, in Greco-Roman life. The covering was something probably like a, a small wrap or a scarf. But in their culture, it was customary for women to have long hair. It was seen as beautiful for a woman to have long hair, even their glory. That's what Paul's alluding to in verse 15 when he says a woman's long hair is her glory. And yet, for a woman to wear her hair down in that day, not up and not with a wrap, but down in that day, 
was seen in public as something as sexually provocative. It was a sign of availability. It was a sign of invitation. It was something um, that was common among temple prostitutes. And so you can imagine then that a married woman with her hair down in public would have been highly offensive to her husband. It would have been a sign of withdrawal from the marriage covenant, a sign of availability to other men. It would have been a shame for both that husband and the wife. And the short hair mentioned in this passage in those days would have been a sign of sexual deviance. A common punishment would have been cut hair or a shaved head for a woman caught in adultery in Roman culture. Historian Bill Winters comments on this. He says, unlike men whose hair was shaved, a woman whose hair was cropped or shaved had been publicly humiliated as an adulteress. And so in the midst of all of these common customs, at the moment that Paul was writing, it also seems, based on a lot of work of first century historians, it also seems that there was a progressive movement among women who wanted to do away. They wanted to do away with all of these social and marital and sexual conventions and establish themselves as free from those traditions. And so the removal of a head covering was something to prove a point for these new Roman women. For all the ways that the men had largely been sexually unrestrained, and Paul addresses that back in chapter 6 with men going to temple prostitutes. For all the ways that they had been largely sexually unrestrained, women were saying, it's our turn now. It's our turn now. This would have been something like the bra burnings back in the 60s, an early feminist movement. And so on the other side, though, in regard to men, Paul's going to say, you shouldn't cover your head. And he says this partly because he's distinguishing Christian worship from pagan worship, but also partly because he was correcting a a symbol of classism in the congregation. It was common in pagan worship to wear a hood or a head covering as a man would perform a sacrifice to pagan gods. And often when these sacrifices happen publicly, it would be done so by the social elite. And so then for a Christian man to wear a head covering or a hood was a carryover from their pagan surroundings, and it was a way of signaling in the congregation something of social superiority and a play for authority or power. Neither of those moves match the Christian message, and the motivation dishonors God completely. Again, historian Bill Winter summarizes all of this. If men drew the veil over their head, as the elite had traditionally done, when leading pagan cultic activities as a part of their liturgical responsibilities, then they were deliberately drawing attention to their social status. It was a strong signal to the other members in the congregations of their social prestige. And certain wives were also making a statement about themselves by deliberately removing the marriage veil when praying and prophesying. Paul accuses them of conduct like that of the new elite Roman women. They were abandoning the definable sign of their married state. And so if men made a statement by covering their heads as elite liturgical performers, why should not wives likewise make a similar statement with theirs? So like we've said before, guys, reading through this, understand their context, it bears saying again, Corinth was a hot mess. This church and this city was wild. And so what becomes clear, after kind of understanding a bit of their context and why Paul speaks this, what becomes clear about this passage, for all of its interpretive challenges, the very core of what Paul is driving at is he's addressing the issue of men and women in the church 
with respect to their given gender and how their redeemed masculinity or femininity ought to be embraced, uh, embraced and expressed. Men and women, with respect to their given gender and how their redeemed masculinity and femininity ought to be embraced and expressed. And so when I use the term gender today, I'm using that in the traditional sense and what I believe the biblical sense of male and female, that a person's gender is the same thing as their biological sex. And so suffice it to say, suffice it to say on this top end, our moment isn't the first in history to deal with gender expression. Our moment isn't the first in history to deal with gender crossing or even disordered sexual orientation. And so that gets us to our second piece today, gender differences. If the chaos of what was happening in Corinth sheds some light on why Paul would pick up this issue on hair and head coverings, it's important to note that he wasn't writing this letter to the city of Corinth. This wasn't just a letter to the city, this is a letter to the church. This is a letter specifically to those who are in the church trying to embody a witness for Jesus in their city. And once again, the Corinthian Christians were taking what was happening broadly in their city along these issues, and they were finding ways to fit them in the church. How do we bring what's happening broadly in our culture into the church? But in their minds, in doing all of this, they were keeping with the traditions that Paul mentions back in verse 2 that he had passed down to them. In their minds, they're saying, hey, what's happening in our culture can probably fit in our church because with Jesus, aren't we all equal? Hey, with Jesus, aren't we all free? Isn't the, aren't the old distinctions of, between men and women done away with because of that equality and freedom in Jesus? After all, the same Paul who planted this church is the same Paul who wrote Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ. Isn't the same Paul who is saying this, the same Paul who wrote that? But what Paul means in, in Galatians chapter 3 when he says that all are one in Christ, it's true. The ground is level before God with Jesus. The ground is level for all of us. Salvation isn't offered to you, and it's not withheld from you based on gender, based on ethnicity, or, or even based on social status. But salvation in Jesus does not nullify or take away fundamental stink distinctions like being a man or a woman any more than it takes away the distinction of being Jew or Greek. A woman who becomes a Christian becomes a Christian woman. A Jew or a Greek who meets Jesus and becomes a Christian becomes a Jewish or Greek Christian. Those distinctions are not lost or thrown away. If anything, those distinctions are redeemed and renewed because they were given by God. Scholar Ben Witherington says it like this, really helpful. Gender distinction is not something human beings created. Paul sees it as a good gift of God, and he wishes it to be manifested and celebrated in Christian worship. He does not believe that there's some neutral core of personhood that has nothing to do with sexual identity. Nor does he believe that sexual distinctions are or will be obliterated in the order of redemption, meaning salvation. In Paul's view, people are redeemed as men and women of God, and there, continue, there are to continue to be men and women, not some neutered or neutral third sort of creature. 
And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul's bringing up this whole issue in order to clarify gender distinctions. He's clarifying it. This was relevant for their context. Our differences, he's saying, aren't a result of sin in the world, that the old distinctions are gone now that Christ has come. And so what he's going to do is he's going to illustrate this whole idea of gender difference, that it's actually rooted in something far deeper. It's actually rooted in the nature of God. Your differences are rooted in the very nature of who God is and in creation before sin entered the world. And so pick up with me in verse 3. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of wife is her husband, and the head of God is Christ. So he gives us this string of three overlapping relationships, of Christ to humanity, of a husband to a wife, and of God to Christ, the Father God to Christ. And there's a lot of debate in the scholarly world about what this word head means, that a husband is head of the wife, or God is the head of Christ. What does this word head mean? Is it, does it mean source? Does it mean authority? It's actually accurately translated both ways in the New Testament. But I believe that this word is best translated in this context as authority, based on how it's used here and in similar places in the New Testament, and based on the fact that we have big theological problems if we take this to mean that Jesus was sourced by God, as if to say that Jesus was made by God. If we take it to mean that, that would contradict the entire witness of Scripture and teach that, 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 that the entire witness of Scripture teaches that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, that Jesus is every bit God as the Father is, but he's distinct in person and in role. This is the mystery of our triune God that he's three and yet one, one God, not three gods, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, every bit, each every bit is God as the other. And so follow me here in the intricacy and beauty of what Paul is trying to show us from the nature of God about our differences as men and women. Just as the Father and the Son are not interchangeable, just as the distinction between father and son are not fluid. The father can't one day decide to be the son. The son can't one day decide to be the father. Just as the father and the son are co-equal in dignity, worth, and value, both very God of very God. Just as the father and the son are not the same, but they're distinct from one another in the same way. Men and women are not interchangeable. Our biological sex and gender are not fluid, but thoughtfully and wonderfully assigned by God. Men and women are co-equal in dignity, in value, and in worth. Both image bearers of the Most High God. We are not the same. We're distinct by design for a complement to one another. You see, when Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, when he submitted to the authority of the Father, that wasn't an assault on the dignity of Jesus. No one sees Jesus as less important or less God for having submitted to the Father. And the same is true for wives right related, rightly related to their husbands. And our differences are not a cultural construct, but they're rooted in the very nature of God. Equality and distinction are not contradictory. That's what this passage is teaching. 
Two things can be different and yet still equal. This passage is teaching that idea. And you got to remember, superiority, superiority isn't the thing being highlighted here as though the Father is superior to the Son of God. Superiority isn't the thing being highlighted here. What's being highlighted, the whole reason for this illustration is our God-given, God-glorifying differences. He moves from the Trinity to creation. I know this is deep and heavy, but, but keep tracking with me. Pick up in verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, before you melt down, before you melt down, notice that what Paul is doing is he's pointing to the creation narrative. This is shorthand for Genesis 1 and 2. He's pointing to the order of creation. He's highlighting distinction. In Genesis 1 and 2, God made Adam first, and he set his image on him. He's not saying that women don't also bear the image of God. He's not saying that. Clearly they do. That's plain in Scripture. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God made them in his image, male and female. Clearly they do. He's simply pointing to, in this passage, which came first. Eve was taken from Adam's side as God saw fit that man should not be alone. And every man in here says, that's smart, God. We agree. We shouldn't be left alone. And God made woman from man. And so follow the illustration. Just as God made man from the dust, and that was a glory to God. The fact that God could do that, the fact that God from the dust makes something like humanity such to the degree that he would set his image on it, that's a glory to God. How can he do that? It's a glory. Who are we that you'd be mindful of us, Psalm 8? That's a testimony to his goodness. So also the illustration follows that woman coming from man's side is a glory to man. It's a testimony to the raw goodness of God's original design in Adam. That something so wonderful, that something so beautiful as woman, another who would also bear the image of God in every way that man does, that that could come from man's side That's a glory to man. And it's not saying something less about women. That's not saying something more about man and less about women. It's not about superiority. It's saying everything about the totality of the goodness of God and all that he invested in humanity. That something in people like us could image him to the world. Who are we that that should happen? And so when it says that woman being made for man, it doesn't mean possessive as if to say that woman belongs to man, but again, he's pointing to the Genesis narrative. It's in terms of a description given to Eve that she's a helper suitable for him, for him as a helper. And the word helper there in Hebrew isn't meaning assistant or maid or you know, a gopher, an errand runner. It doesn't mean that. The word in Hebrew as helper suitable literally means to fill up what's lacking, to supply strength. It's the same word used throughout the Old Testament, even in the Psalms, ascribed to God, God our helper. That's the word given to Eve there. 
And so Andrew Wilson, a London pastor, has a good illustration on this that I think we can all agree on. He says, I have an apple tree in my garden, which produces apples, oddly enough. It's great. And he says, and from that, we make apple crumble. And the crumble is the glory of the apple. And we'd all go, it is. It is. We can all agree on that. The crumble is the glory of the apple. It reflects its goodness in every way, and it brings honor to it. The apple is the glory of the tree. And none of the three are superior or inferior to the other two. Men and women both bear God's image together and reflect God's glory on earth in different and complementary ways. And so this passage, guys, this passage might use phrasing, and I think that it certainly does, we would say so. It uses phrasing that is on some level offensive and foreign to our modern sensibilities. But you remember, it was written, the core of why it was written is to help this church in a gender-confused city behold the greater glory of God's design and embody that in order to be a witness to the city. That's why this was written. Paul intends for all of this, regardless of what you think of it, he intends for all of this to lead toward more unity. His intention is this would lead to greater appreciation and greater love, not less. Notice how he resolves the thought in verse 11. He says, so nevertheless, in the Lord, because of what God has done in Jesus, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For woman was made from man, but now man is born of woman. We're interdependent. We're not independent. We're interdependent. And he says, and all of this is from God. God is the one who designed this. God is the one. If, this is, if there's a construct, it's a construct that God gave for beauty and for flourishing between both men and women. And so here's the transition. We're about to get a lot of work, but get to the big why of the passage. Why is Paul, why is Paul all of a sudden in this book, why is he so concerned about their gender differences and how that's expressed in the church? Why, why is he concerned about this? Pick up with me in verse four again. He says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her, hair unco or her head uncovered dishonors her head. Some people, when they open this passage, they want to circle male headship as the big idea here. Because of the word head and the word authority being used, they want to circle that. That's the big idea. Other people, when they open this passage, they want to circle head coverings as though that's the big idea, that what Paul's really concerned about is just hair and hats. But I want you to recognize that both of those things, headship and head coverings, are important to understand that Paul is trying to make points about the distinction of men and women, and all of that is happening in light of corporate worship, particularly prayer and prophecy. This has to do with how the church gets together and expresses worship to God. Don't miss, don't miss, guys. What's so radical, what's so revolutionary, and what's so important about this passage both then and now? Women. Women are being said in this passage to be praying and prophesying in public worship, and Paul is in no way shutting that down. For all the talk about the role of women in the church and the place of women in the church, Paul is talking about women 
publicly praying and prophesying, and he is in no way shutting that down. He's not telling anyone, men or women, to participate in public prayer prophecy less. He's not doing that. He's encouraging it all the more, but he gives one caveat. One caveat as to how this ought to go down. Men, I want you to do so distinctly as redeemed men. I want you to do this. Pray and prophesy, but do it distinctly. Rightly ordered as a man, presenting yourself before the church and to God as a redeemed man. Women, I want you to do this, but I want you to do this distinctly as a redeemed woman. Rightly expressing yourself to the church and to God. And we'll talk more about prophecy in chapters 12 and 14, but it's enough to say here that women had a significant place of ministry with prayerful and prophetic participation in the public gathering of the church. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And there's one more verse that we've got to see, and if this passage wasn't already challenging enough, we get verse 10. We get verse 10. And he says, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, comma, because of the angels. I'll just keep moving. That's simple enough, right? Hey, there's a ton of varying opinions on what's going on in this verse, but here's my humble opinion. Here's my humble opinion after doing just tons and tons of work here on what Paul is saying. As a culturally appropriate expression of modesty, particularly for a wife in their culture, a woman ought to wear a head covering as a symbol of authority. It's not an oppressive symbol that needs to be removed, as the new Roman women would want to say, but it's a symbol that needs to be celebrated. It's a symbol that needs to be celebrated as a woman of honor who's faithful to her husband. And it's a sign to the church that this is a kind of woman who is to be received and respected when she prays and prophesies. That's, that's what I believe that Paul is saying. And the reason that women should do this is, well, because of the angels. <laughs> because of the angels. Hey, listen, Paul is making a shorthand passing statement at a massive reality. He's saying, don't you know that there's angels among you every time you gather for worship? We've been singing this morning, praying, confessing, receiving, having God's word open to us. There are angels among us. God's ministering spirits to edify us, to join in our hallelujah chorus. Don't you know this is every time you gather for worship? And because there are angels present, this is his whole plea, because there are angels present, beings who are rightly ordered by God and presenting themselves before God, they're not confused about being angels. They know who they are as angelic beings, and they're presenting themselves back to God in the order of how he made them as angelic beings. Because that's happening, we too ought to present ourselves, male and female, rightly ordered by God, and back to God, before God. Join in with the order and design of his creation. That's Paul's appeal. This whole conversation around gender and gender expression is a big deal because it's connected to the gospel. Guys, this is not a third tier or a sidebar issue as though you can have your spirituality and then choose your own adventure on this, disconnected from that. Paul wants the church to understand 
for themselves. Understand this for yourselves first, but also understand this would be a prophetic sign to the city with all kinds of stuff that was happening in Corinth. And by the way, now too, this would be a sign to the city that God, God doesn't just care about what you believe in your mind or in your soul. He doesn't just care about that. As your creator, he cares about your body too. You see, the Christian message, the Christian gospel is a message of being redeemed as whole persons. We're not just redeemed with new beliefs and new affections. We're redeemed as whole people, mind, body, and soul. Your body and your gender are not arbitrary. Your body and your gender are not arbitrary. Remember back in chapter 6, he says, you were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus, the Son of God, who had his body broken for you. What's Paul's resolve? Glorify God with your body. The Christian message is a message of being saved as whole persons. So here's the final turn today. What about us? Hey, I mentioned in the beginning, this passage at first pass feels so far removed from us, like just to read it. And yet, isn't it, as we've kind of gone through it, isn't it acutely relevant to our current cultural conversation? And what's crazy is that Paul acknowledges that what he's saying here is controversial. He acknowledges that. In verse 16, he wraps up the whole section like this. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, like he acknowledges you're probably gonna wanna be, but he says, if anyone's inclined to be contentious about this, he says, we, we don't have a practice in doing that. Pretty big statement. We're not going to have a practice in being contentious about God's design, not just us, but none of the churches of God. This is just how it is in God's church. What's ironic about that, in a sad way, is that many in our day are trying to find ways around the implications of this passage and fit culture into the church. All the while, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. And so to pull this together, head coverings and hair length don't mean in our culture what they meant in the first century Roman Corinth. So men with long hair aren't in every case trying to look or be feminine. Men with a hat on, if you have a hat on, you can leave it on. You don't need to take it off right now, right? <laughs> Men with a hat on in church aren't trying to say something about their social status like they were or signaling something to us about your participation in pagan worship. That's, that's not what hats mean today. Women with their hair down aren't trying to be sexually provocative anymore, or at least in our culture. And they're not trying to show themselves to be unfaithful to their husbands and the way they wear their hair. And most women with short hair aren't expressing sexual deviance. And none, to my knowledge, are being punished for adultery in our moment. And so the timeless translation of this passage for our culture is this. Here's how I'd like, there's a lot of ways we could go this, but here I'll sort of zero in on one, one level for us. Receive. Receive and express who you are as a man or as a woman as something given to you by God for the glory of God. I'll get specific with men for a second. Men, brothers, 
This passage, I think, means that you should bring all of your masculinity to bear in the church. Bring all of it. And not just an unhindered masculinity. That's, that's important. It's a masculinity that's shaped by the word of God and submitted to Jesus. Masculinity after the pattern of Jesus. But bring all of that to bear in the church. And why? So you can pray and prophesy for the glory of God and the good of one another. With no need and no attempt to soften yourself or mute your masculinity in order to be more acceptable or heard. Bring it to bear. Ladies, sisters, bring all of your femininity to bear in the church. Bring all of it. Not an unhindered femininity, but one that is shaped by the word of God, submitted to Jesus, and wives rightly related to your husbands, and do all of that to pray and prophesy in the church for the glory of God and the good of others. Bring all of it with no need or attempt to harden yourself or prove yourself in an effort to assert power or balance power or to be taken more seriously or heard. You are heard because you're an image bearer of the most high God, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. You are heard. And so may we be a church where men and women work together to cheer one another on to greater faith, greater obedience, and greater mission to Jesus. May we work together. Guys, here's where I want to see this happen, and maybe most acutely and especially practically even this week. Work together to cultivate opportunities and community groups where men and women can pray and prophesy. Like, like I know that it's, a, it's stereotyping, so it's not 100% true, but men need spaces where they can learn to work through their inhibitions to pray out loud. I would love for our community groups to be spaces where they can cultivate those kinds of opportunities for the glory of God and for the good of others. And where, ladies, where you can know that you are seen, you are heard, and you are taken seriously, because that's simply true. And may we use our Christian freedom not for licentiousness in the world. May we use our Christian freedom to be aimed. We're free now to grow up into the fullness of all that God has made us as men and women. We're free to put down enmity between the genders. This isn't about one gender being better than the other. This is about glorifying the design of God's order. We're free to put down power in comparison as weapons of the world and to take up, to take up who we are as God's people. And so I realize for as many things as we've addressed today, there's just as many things that are surfacing in your mind as questions. The limitations of our time, the limitations of this sermon don't allow for us to explore all the possible implications of this passage. I left much, believe it or not, on the cutting room floor that didn't make it to this moment. But that's the beauty of us being a church family. Hey, where you have questions, we really wanna process that. We, we, wanna, we wanna be faithful to God's word. And so in a time, here's my final today, in a time that is so at war on the issue of gender, at a time, at a time when the church is seen as an oppressive presence in the world, at a time like this, I want our church 
The elders of this church want our church to be a place where everyone is welcome. Everyone. Everyone is welcome wherever you are in your struggle with gender or sexual orientation. Everyone. I know that there are those here today with gender struggles and anxieties. You're hearing it. Thank you for running with me today. Can you hear my heart? I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. God's love is available to you. God's love is available to you. He's not freaked out by you. He's not embarrassed of you. God sent his son for you just like he sent him for the rest of us. In the same way. Only in Jesus are we truly authentic. Only in Jesus are we truly authentic and able to be our true selves because only in Jesus are we who our maker intended us to be. Only in Jesus. And so all of us in this room, all of us have disordered desires. Every single one of us. Every one of us. And Jesus welcomes everyone. Jesus welcomes anyone who would receive him, who would deny themselves, and who would follow him. He receives everyone who would do that. Let's pray together. Our Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done. Our Father, let your kingdom come and let your will be done in this room just like it's happening in heaven. Father, thank you for sending angels here to be with us today. Holy Spirit, you you know, you search the hearts of every one of us. Would you please draw us up to your presence and draw us out to your truth? And King Jesus, would it be really strong today, the ministry that you would receive anyone who would receive you, deny themselves, and follow you? anyone. We offer this prayer to you, Jesus, as our Lord and our King. We ask you to form us on our church. In Jesus' name, amen.